Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Today, we are with uh, Hadija, who is coming all the way from uh, Uganda to talk to us. And uh, Hadija is uh, involved with the Nemora Network. It's a pleasure to have you this morning talking with me, Hadija. So these interviews are really about sharing the experiences that people have in navigating their way through an academic life and talking about some of the challenges that people have, some of the joy that they have about having a, a career in the academic world, and also navigating between different professional life in and out of academia. So, Hadija, can you tell us a little bit about how you started your, your career and uh, tell us about your discipline and the early years of your professional life? Thank you so much, Sanjay. I'm called Hadija Yahya. I'm a lawyer by profession, but a lawyer who immediately went into administration and uh, management of the university education at Kampala International University, as well as research in one of the consultancy firms in Uganda. I'm a natural resource lawyer, so I'm biased towards environmental law and governance issues, pollution and related uh, matters to do with sustainable development as well as gender mainstreaming. Yes, the career path in academia, I there's no specific roots I thought about, but because I was involved in uh, university administration and management, and because I had taught some kind of formal, informal teaching in my senior six. You had done some teaching originally in a, in a secondary school, is that what you were saying, or in university? I started from uh, the secondary school, well as waiting for my form six, end of uh, secondary school education results. I did some part-time teaching where I taught economics and history as well as geography. Yes, so that's why I started my teaching. That's around 2004. So you were training as a lawyer. You could have this made a decision to go and earn a lot of money being a lawyer and working in big corporations. So What drew you to actually work in a university? Because financially, it's not probably as rewarding as, you know, working as a lawyer. So what was really the pull for you to be starting on this career? First of all, the, the, the timing of that transition was such that I had to leave um, the city and work in another district six hours away from the capital city, which is not the same as being in Kampala, for example. And the reason for that was uh, my husband had been transferred 
to walk up country and I had a very small baby. So combining my passion for teaching and the circumstances at the time, I weighed the options of staying in town and going around chasing for money with family and my small daughter who was just about two, three months old. That was about 2010. I took a decision to go on with a job in that district in administration of the university as well as part-time teaching. So that was one of the factors. But two, I realized that my female lecturer, you can be in academia, but also do some practice, do some consultancy work, and also take care of your family, if you're a family person like I am. Did it feel like a good balance between having a, a diversity of contribution and also uh, uh, the sense that you could have more of a balanced life than in, in other professional spheres? Yes, absolutely. So that, that balance, I, I didn't think I could get it if I went full blast practice, you know, and learning from my senior colleagues, I realized okay, teaching after all is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Imparting knowledge, sharing, mentoring. Yeah, and it's something I take joy in. I love mm-hmm. to teach. I love to speak. I love to share. And I love to learn because the more you teach, the more you learn. So can you tell us a little bit about the discipline yes. of law that you're working in? I mean, if I understand correctly, it's about natural resources and combining the, the legal aspect and the implication of the way we mine the ground. Tell us a little bit more about it and why it matters to you to work in this area. It matters to me very much. So the resource management or governance stems from the fact that for African countries, we rely on natural resources for survival. We look at the world as a community which has different members in that community. The motivation that I have is from, first of all, the fact that we all depend on natural resources for survival. We depend on a stable environment. Mental integrity is very key to our survival happening. And for countries like Uganda or Africa at large, we cannot just look on as we degrade the land because we are, for example, land, we are entirely, we are largely, I beg your pardon, and we are largely agricultural economies. So my passion comes with wanting to contribute to try and create that balance between our human survival, our human interests, without destroying the survival of other non-human um, beings that we share this uh, community called the, 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 the world together. And because the other reason is I've not seen so many people, especially women, around. And in fact, when I decided to do this at postgraduate, Master's of Law in Natural Resource Law, one was like, okay, Adija, so what are you doing in natural resources? That's, that's boring. You want to get money. That's for men. Come on. That's for scientists. But I know that that's what I like. And since then, that, that has been my life writing about similar issues. I'm passionate about environmental, natural resource aspects, which are key in ensuring sustainable developments. Looking at the legalities involved, what laws we have, what we need, how we enforce, and how to review. 
do you think that it makes a difference in the way you are perceived in your role? I mean, being a woman in an environment where there are probably a lot of scientists and, you know, engineers and so on, and how you are perceived as a woman and as a lawyer in that sort of field? Yes, absolutely. It does make a difference. And for various reasons. One, we've all come to appreciate the aspect of multidisciplinarity. There's no single discipline that can provide a solution to the current challenges we are facing. So coming up as a group, as a team of economists, of scientists, legal persons, makes a huge uh, difference. And coming in as a female species, it makes a, a bigger difference. And I see that my teammates, my superiors, my seniors really appreciate the little that they come with to the table. And in that way, I keep learning as well as them learning from me. So it makes some difference. How do you feel that you can be heard? I remember projects I have been involved where, you know, we had social scientists who were coming and trying to work with biologists and often the biologists had a really hard time to understand what actually it's meant to do research in social science and we're wondering why are these social scientists really involved in this project you know we don't really understand what they do so from you know the interaction that you have with scientists and engineers and so on how is it to actually interact in in that interdisciplinary space i would say it's so uh straightforward or any easier but once we understand what we want to do and we we must be on the same footing as far as our focus of the problem we are trying to answer the question we are trying to handle the project's objectives you know so when that is done everyone always has a lot of work to do especially as reading as far as reading is concerned and their challenges for example terminologies especially when you're coming from the humanities from me with my legal background you go and get into very uh, complicated terminologies but we don't focus on these we focus on the main objective and the purpose for why we have come together and with the support from each of the team members work becomes easier along the way and that's how we are able to achieve what do you find uh, the, uh, through the work that you are doing? What what is really your purpose? What's your you know? Do you have like something? Are you on a mission in some ways in terms of the work that you want to achieve? Because often you know you can be doing research for a long time on a topic, and the, the end point of the changes that you create through the research is you know very intangible. But in your case, is there something that you feel that's my mission? That's what I want to see happen as a result of my research. Yes, I have. I have a mission. I have a vision. I have. I'm working toward with my teammates in various projects we are doing or we hope to do in the near future. We I hope to have meaningful impacts on the communities. For example, looking at the at the research I'm currently pursuing for my doctorate, looking at chemical pollution. And we hope to do a project on that. Whether we do the project or not, I'm trying to design my tools in such a way that at the end of the day, there is some impact on the ground. Because there's been so much research outside there, like you're rightly pointing out, but coming on the ground to check how that has trickled down to the community, 
to change what we went out to change from the beginning, you don't find much tangible impact or results. So I hope and I'm optimistic that the way I'm carrying out my study and the projects we hope to get out of this uh, study will have impacts, for example, on community awareness, on the impacts or the negative effects of the use of chemicals, the way the chemicals should be disposed of, the way they should be handled, and what to do when there is some leakage into that kind of system. So my my hope and with lessons I've learned from the times we started interacting and with the numerous impact already, I see that it doesn't make so much sense to get involved in things that do not have uh, results that you can almost touch, you can see and put your head up and get energy to do further uh, objects. But aside of my doctoral project, there are other projects I've been involved in and others yet to start that we are focusing on creating more impacts, not only in Uganda, but in the East African region and the Sub-Saharan Africa. When people are making a decision on where to do a PhD, who to do a PhD with, what to do a PhD on. How did you go about making a decision? Because for a lot of, you know, academics in Africa, many may think, well, you know, I want to go abroad, you know, or I should do, I should study here. Or how, what was your approach? What were the strategies that you used yourself in making a decision on where to study, who to study with? How did you go about it? Uh, yes, I actually, well, I was growing up, I, I always thought, okay, one of my degrees should be outside Uganda and outside East Africa, for that matter, or Af- outside Africa. But well, as time went by, the circumstances, looking at what I actually wanted, I narrowed down to Africa, and that was South Africa, to be precise. Just a little background on how I got to where I am. So I, one of my professors in Uganda, gives me a contact of a professor at one of the South African universities. We get along well. I do apply. I get a provisional admission. I do my proposal, get first reviews. So from that point, there were delays in uh, feedback from the committee. So in that period, 2018, I decided to apply to other universities. I applied to another South African university in Johannesburg and Nairobi University. And fast forward, I decided to go to University of Nairobi for the reasons. One, the Center for Advanced Studies of Environmental Policy and Law is a multidisciplinary center and it focuses on the issues that touch my heart so dearly. So once I got my admission, I thought, okay, this is it. And I didn't want to think further. Even when I had another admission from South Africa, I chose to go to University of Nairobi because I realized their mission matches well with mine. But also, Nairobi is near Uganda. In case of any economic hardships, the worst comes the worst, I wouldn't be as stuck as uh, being abroad because I'm paying for myself. And then the other good reason is the faculty and my colleagues in some of the projects I've done, we've co-authored, we've co-edited, So we share a lot in common. And I even wondered why I didn't think of this option. 
of uh, going to the University of Nairobi in the very first place. So where, where are you at now in your PhD? The level of my proposal development, I submitted the draft, the, the first draft, and um, working on feedback. Hopefully, I defend by March latest, so I can go to the field. What, what you're saying about uh, having sort of an alignment of your values and your interests with uh, with the research center is really interesting, and also the balancing between the ideas that we may have about you know what's the best in terms of the reputation and actually what's the best for us and what matches our value and, and the balancing of the different options and this idea that th- there, is, there isn't just a one way of doing it and we have to find, depending on the context that we are, are, are in. And, 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 and I like you also your thinking around if there is hardship and you know, what, what will make it feasible in the context of your own life. And that's really interesting. We're going to run some sessions with the Nemora Network about writing. And that's some things that for, for many people in, involved in academia, writing is something that's, you know, challenging for, for some, you know, tremendously difficult for others, or maybe just okay for, you know, for a few. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the type of academic writing that, that you've done up until now? I've been involved in some writing for the past few years. But even before then, I did do some research at my undergraduate. It was compulsory where I did a project on corporate governance that was at undergraduates. Then I did some few projects after that. And of course, I did research. I did a dissertation for my master's of laws, natural resource law, where I looked at decentralized governance of forestry resources in Uganda. And I did write some papers, some alone and some with colleagues on various aspects of land administration, gender aspects, climate change, as well as soil governance. So I can say I'm growing steadily in this path I decided to take with a very few years of experience. Can I ask you, Hadija, so what, what tends to be your approach when you're starting a, a writing project? You know, how, I mean, everybody's got a different way of, of starting a, a writing project. What's your strategy? What helps you the most when you're starting on a project? It all depends on what project I'm handling. For example, the paper I wrote about Red Plus. Red Plus is one of those initiatives for dealing with climate change, reduction of emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. So the paper, I'm just giving an example. The paper I did write on that area stemmed from a conference, a scientific conference and a symposium, which we had in one of the African countries. And those who presented were asked to, if they were interested to have their paper published, were asked to submit polished full papers. So the approach I took was to go back to the drawing board, look at the topic I was handling, read more widely than I didn't read for the presentation so that I can see what is in the literature, what gap exists, and how this research could contribute to that existing gap. So I can say that without going round and round, 
that usually I start by looking at the area. If it's about legal instruments in dealing with a red plus, I read widely so that I can have a specific issue to deal about to avoid going all over the place and ending up with uh, nothing almost. So I read, identify an area, then I read widely, can see what others have done, subheadings, subteams, have a structure. I've learned to have a structure of what I want to write about to avoid uh, getting lost in too much literature, to avoid time wasting, and to avoid demoralization, which almost comes naturally. It's really fascinating because every time I speak to a, a different academic, they, they always, you know, everybody's got their own way of dealing with writing. One of the things that I'm really interested to hear about is the little habits that people have in terms of how they schedule their time, where they do their writing. So do you have habits that you've managed to establish that have been really helpful in being able to be productive with your writing? Yes, my habits sometimes are strange. Yes, I've picked some habits along the way. For example, most of these writings have deadlines. Depending on which journal, you must have a deadline. So I always try to divide my time when I should read and when I should write. Sometimes reading, I can actually read in any environment. I could easily put my headphones on and listen to something while I'm reading, depending on the moods and the energy levels. Otherwise, when it comes to intensive reading, and beating deadlines or achieving a lot, I've learned to leave home, even in this lockdown. I leave home, go somewhere quiet, concentrate, maximum concentration, put in the whole day, then return home afterward. That's for the reading environment and mannerisms. But also looking at my themes, I go by my structure, but sometimes... Once I'm clear on what I'm writing about, sometimes I don't follow those the, the outline very religiously. I could easily skip and go to another section. I get something to rejuvenate my body so that the next time on the machine or oh, I'm reading printed um, document, really productive and efficient. So those are some of the things I've tried to learn to do over time to keep me going. What, what do you think is the most challenging for you in terms of having the resilience in a research project? Because often, you know, we, we start with lots of good intention, we put a plan in place, and then the reality of actually delivering on the plan often is hard. As a lecturer, you've got your teaching, marking, and so on, and a lot of stuff gets in the way. So how do you maintain the motivation and resilience to keep at it? The, the resilience and motivation, yes, like we are all agreeing, writing is not a joke. It's not a simple task. And sometimes you start with a lot of gas and, you know, it fades as you go along. But what has helped me to keep the candle burning is, especially this year, I owe it to NEMRA and people like you, Dr. Byron, and other 
senior people who have come to our rescue. When you look at what is happening in Nemra, you're like, okay, so who am I not to achieve what I set out to achieve? But also at a personal level, I always want to reflect. I always have moments of reflection of why did I go into this in the very first time? So I always want to revisit the motivation I had at the beginning. I reassess and I speak to myself and encourage myself. I'm like, okay, I can do it. I've done it, others have done it and I can do it and I can pull it off. And talking to colleagues in the same groups also helps. They motivate, they give you ideas of how you can do things uh, better, you know. That kind of moral and social support uh, also assists. Often we have this view that, you know, people really are on their own in the writing process. And, and in some ways, some people may be okay, you know, just writing on their own. But and, and often we just have to be on our own to write, of course, but actually creating an environment that will support us. And that's what you're in the process of establishing through NEMRA of saying, well, we are in this together and we can support each other through these processes that we have to go through. And also the value of taking the time, like you've described, taking the time to reflect. And I think that probably for many people, taking the time to reflect may be maybe perceived as a waste of time. I always see as a way of grounding us in reminding us of what matters and why we are in this and the mm. power that this has. Absolutely. Sometimes I actually take off uh, an hour or so, sometimes even a whole day. If I've done a lot of reading three days in a row, take a day off. As I do other things, I'm reflecting and, you know, self-energizing. And that has worked. Is there something that you feel has really helped you improve your writing? Because, you know, we, you know, sometimes we we have sort of default position the way we go about writing and it's not necessarily very effective. And what, what have you used or, you know, what, what has been the strategy that have helped you kind of become a better writer, academic writer? What I've done and what I continue to do, one thing for sure is reading widely. Reading, reading, and reading. Because every time I read, sometimes I feel, okay, I've, I've obtained some growth. I know how to structure a paper, an academic paper. I know how to go about a review of literature. But trust me, every time I read, I realize, okay, I'm learning a thing or two. So reading as a culture, reading widely, loving to read, is something that uh, all people in this space must take up seriously, as opposed to write, reading for the sake of writing and crossing a certain you know, stage in life. So reading widely, reading consistently is one of the things I've appreciated over time, challenging as it might be. As I do the wide reading, I've tried to learn to be critical as I read, and as I write, but that's something I still have to work on. I'm not very proud of myself when it comes to being uh, critical as opposed to being descriptive. Then I've also learned to look at uh, the expectations of the journals that I want to send the, the papers I'm working on, knowing their expectations, their do's, their don'ts, their standards is something that I've found very critical in academic writing, 
as well as familiarizing myself with relevant theories in the area I'm writing about. These have helped me to underpin what I'm writing about. And most times when I do that, I find I get very positive comments about my papers, even from my professors who wonder, okay, this is a paper after all. Why did you have to use theories? Do you know you had a better paper than most of us? You know, things like those keep me going. And of course, proofreading and checking for grammar so that the readers are not bored. Hadija, can I ask you, what's the, the sort of la publication landscape that exists for African researchers? I mean, that's, that's an area that I don't know very much about. Are there a lot of journals? And also, how easy is it or difficult is it for African researchers to publish in journals from the US, the UK, and so on? What is it like? as an African researcher, you know, to be able to publish? Yes, we do have quite a number of journals in the continent, different subjects. Fortunately, we've not learned to appreciate journals. There are some quite good journals, if you go by the impact factor. But because we are always thinking of publishing in uh, what we call the Western journals, in the U.S., best, in... Um, Europe, you know, this mindset of if I don't publish in those ones, my paper will not be read. But I'm convinced over time that it doesn't matter where you publish as long as you find a way of ensuring that your work is actually read. So we have journals which can do a good job. Access, sometimes it's a challenge because most times actually, uh, unless you have uh, an opportunity to publish from a workshop, from a conference, from different trainings, sometimes publishing is uh, hindered by cost. So accessibility is a big factor. The thing that you're saying about how researchers appreciate themselves reading things from African-based uh, journals is really important because in a way it's, you know, in a way pushing up African research so that other African researchers are using it and quoting it and so on instead of relying on Western journals and, and changing people's mindset or the way they are perceiving research that is published in these African journals. It's it's quite, it's a complicated issue, but it's a really important one. Yes, so that's, that, that's one of the challenges, actually, because without supporting them, without throwing up purpose there, they won't come up, even the impact factor we always look out for will, will not come up really. I remember recently when I was doing my coursework, one of the instructors asked us to review some literature and he was saying we need to have 40% from the African journals. But that was the hardest assignment we ever had. There are some areas where you can't find a thing published in an African journal. It's African literature published in the Western journals, which leaves a big gap. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because in a way, it's also links to some of the work, I guess, that you do about gender mainstreaming, because it's about creating a commitment mm. towards raising up people who are, you know, who may be publishing in African journals and making the work visible in a mm. way that If you don't commit to doing it, 
then you're not going to be searching for it. Exactly. That's my point. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you are doing about gender mainstreaming? What, what sort of work are you doing in this area? We are looking at aspects of the role of women, for example, in biodiversity conservation. And specifically this year, I presented a paper, but I also submitted a journal article on uh, the role of women in land administration in Uganda. How to ensure that women play a significant role in these resources to which they are the closest users, closest custodians. How to ensure that there is some balance which is necessary for gender equality and equity. So there are various aspects of gender mainstreaming, but like I already mentioned, the work I do is across the natural resource and environment. So gender mainstreaming in the oil and gas sector, gender aspects in land management, gender aspects in biodiversity, but also gender aspects in terms of development generally. What is it like to be a woman in academia in, in Uganda? What are the challenges that, that you have faced in progressing your own career? I'll speak both as a woman and, yeah, I think let me stick to the woman. But I know I'll digress a little bit to the general challenges which other male colleagues go through. As a woman, I think Uganda has a lot of potential and provides an environment that one can focus and go a lot higher in this uh, space. There are challenges, first as a family person, but also the economics in this space. If, for example, one is to rely on the salaries that they get as teaching staff in Uganda, I'm sorry, but one might never, unless you teach in three, four schools, one might never have even the very basic needs fulfilled. This is a cross-cutting challenge. It's not only for women, but as a woman, we always have more responsibilities. That's why I'm being biased and I'm being selfish, actually, pulling it to the woman's side. But the other challenge is Uganda, generally, the education has been highly privatized. My university is a private university, and this brings a lot of students on board. Whoever qualifies and can afford would end up coming. So you find that you have quite huge numbers of students to deal with. Well, at the same time, you have, for the same reasons I gave to do with economics, you have some other roles to play somewhere else. For the same reasons, I decided to take study leave. I'm not teaching until I'm done with my doctoral studies. So that it's a big sacrifice, but it's uh, it's interesting because it's about really committing to your own career and accepting that you you can't do everything at the same time and and mm-hmm. focusing on on the studying. But that's a ma- that's a massive uh, sacrifice financially. It is. So I'm left with the little projects here and there somehow because I need some money. I can't do without cash, so I have to pay my tuition. But I know I'll, I'll get over this in the next two years or so. Wow. Well, we wish you luck, that's for sure. 
Hadija, we're going to come to Thank a close you. in a, in our conversation. Are there things that I haven't asked you that you really would like to share with our listeners about what it's like to be a researcher in Uganda and a woman undertaking a PhD in Uganda? Anything that you feel our listener would want to to learn from you, a, a pearl of wisdom from you? Ah, oh. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you, Sandrine. I yes, even though we had spoken about it earlier, I still find that so many people, myself inclusive, have a challenge narrowing down to a specific research problem and how to effectively do literature review. Those two are still a big challenge. And uh, the hope is in these programs that you've come up with, so far the contribution is massive. We are getting there, we are improving, and we hope we can always improve research challenges in Uganda. I can say that research steadily growing in the country generally, although it's not focused, it's not underpinned by a national research agenda. As far as I know, we still don't have. So you find that a lot of research projects are individualized, therefore they are scattered. And even where colleagues or groups of people come together, most times they have to rely on external funding. And this funding most times comes with us strings attached, it comes with conditions, terms and conditions, which in my view, do not necessarily fit into the national development agenda, you know? So I, I think as the culture improves of doing research, researchers need a lot of support, a lot more support from the government and the other international development partners But as we talk about international development partners, without the government support, we shall continue having these projects that are not in tandem with what our national development agenda is talking about. So prioritization becomes an issue. Because there's money in um, an organization A to be spent, there's something they want to find which is beneficial to their country, you know, agenda. You, you end up having the imposition of these projects, not because they are really urgent in our circumstances, but because there's money for that particular project, leaving out actual issues not touched, simply because we don't have a research agenda as a country, and therefore there's no money outlined for certain critical research projects. So I think going forward, it would be, it's imperative that the country the government, the stakeholders in that space, look at research as an urgent necessity in our community and give it the support that it deserves. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and that's why the NEMWA network is so important and some of the work that you are doing all together in bringing some of the researchers from all these different institutions to contribute to the development of a research agenda for the country. It's very complex, but it's about collaborating to create a structure that will allow the country to establish a research agenda that people can focus on. Is there a last word for our audience that you have? The last word would be a word of appreciation, really, to you and Kevin. 
Oh, that's very kind of you. For arranging such uh, events to enable us to learn and also share our little experiences so that we can build a stronger research community. We really appreciate Thank you very much. So I'm going to say goodbye to Adija and I hope to see you very soon. Goodbye, Adija. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. Thank you.